I was flying from Dallas-Fort Worth Airport to Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was serving in the interim there a number of years ago and flew back and forth every weekend. And um, I uh, happened to sit uh, next to a young man by the name of Anthony. Anthony was returning to Albuquerque, New Mexico, his home, having um, spent a semester at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I engaged him in conversation, and we had some small talk to begin with. And we eventually got onto the subject of the Bible. And I asked him about his opinion about the Bible, and he said, well, I think it's immoral. Well, I, I, we talked a little bit about that, and I inquired about that, and asked him why in the world he thought it was immoral, and how in the world the Bible could produce so much morality if it indeed was immoral, and how in the world its primary hero and its superstar, Jesus Christ, well, what he thought about him. And then I asked him the question. I said, let's imagine that you've got to go to a drugstore at 2 or 3 in the morning, a 24-hour drugstore, and it's located in a seedy side of town. You go in, you come out, and you see a group of large men walking towards you. And they're walking at a pretty brisk pace. Would you be comforted or would you be afraid that they were carrying Bibles with them under their arm, having just left a Bible study for shift workers at the local manufacturing plant. He said, well, I'd have to be honest with you. I'd be rather comforted. I said, do you still think the Bible is immoral? Well, he hem-hawed around back and forth and all. Ladies and gentlemen, that is in some quarters of our world what we're facing. We're facing two things. A profoundly negative view of the Christian faith and the Word of God, number one. <coughs> but oftentimes on a very superficial basis. Mo I have found most of the critics of the Bible have never read the Bible. Now with that, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20. This is one unit. It's the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And here, Paul magnifies the victorious Word of God. There are several vantage points from which people treat the Bible, or how they approach the Bible. One is the arm. They keep the Bible at arm's distance. They deny Scripture's victory, its truthfulness, and any benefit to it. Then there are some that approach it merely with the brain. They intellectualize the content of the Bible. In fact, I had a principal, a high school principal, my high school principal, who had outlined the entire Bible but was an atheist, but felt like he needed to know the content of the Bible. And so he diligently and carefully went through the Scripture and provided of it a meticulous outline to study it, merely a mental knowledge of it. Then there are some that only approach the Bible from the heart, may not have an awful lot of mind with it, but merely the heart. They have an emotional dependence upon the Bible. That's not bad. I don't dismiss that. But what I'm complaining about here is that it is as far as their interaction with the Word of God goes. They look to the Scripture to make them feel good. But then there are some that approach it with the soul. In the Old and New Testament, the soul is a word that describes the whole person. Everything they are, total commitment. It's the difference between the chicken and the pig at breakfast. The chicken makes a contribution, the pig, it's total commitment. And this is what the individual who appropriately approaches the Bible, does with the Word of God. A total commitment. They trust Scripture's victory. Scripture, God's Word, provides victory. If you want power in your walk with Jesus, immerse yourself 
in the Word of God. And that's why we propose the following priorities for Beach Haven Baptist Church in our upcoming future. One is Christ-likeness. That is, Scripture has the power to define Christ. The only Jesus we know is the Jesus of the Bible. And then, worship. Scripture has the power to order worship, and it defines it. And we're to be as broad-minded as the Bible is broad on worship, but no more broad. And we're to be as narrow on worship as the Bible is narrow, but no more narrow. And then Sunday school is a priority we're proposing. And that is, Scripture has the power to fuel the Sunday school or Bible study ministry. Discipleship training. Scripture has the power to rule disciples. We've got to grow in comfort, and we've got to grow in hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ to master our lives and tell us what to do. Then evangelism. Scripture has the power to convert souls. Psalms 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Well, on August 16th, the deacons are proposing to you this set of priorities and a vision statement that you've read this past week in the beams. And on that day, I want us to have a Beach Haven Promise Day. I want us to commit ourselves to participating in our Bible conference that would begin that evening, August the 16th, Sunday, August the 16th, with Tommy Fountain Sr. We're calling it Bouncing Back and Moving Forward. And if by August 16th, that Sunday night, you are still breathing, I want to urge you to be here. Change your plans if you can to come and be here. And then we want to commit ourselves to a prayer effort our prayer team is leading us in called Praying for Others. We'll give you more information on that soon. Then evangelism training, September 27th. We want to ask you to commit yourself to be a part of that. And then worship on Wednesday. We're proposing on September the 9th to introduce a second Wednesday service at 4 o'clock. And we will continue our 6 o'clock service. I'm anticipating we'll need the space. And we will experiment with that 4 o'clock time to build disciples for Christ as we walk with Jesus. Now, in Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20, we find abundant reasons to engage in these kinds of priorities and these efforts because the Word of God gives us victory and in these chapters Luke described the victory of the Word in one city of the ancient world one of the most significant cities outside of Rome and that happened to be the city of Ephesus and at the end of chapter 18 he talks about how the Word of God changed the mind of Apollos and the disciples of John the Baptist from chapter 18 verse 24 to chapter 19 verse 7. Apollos did not have a full and accurate understanding of Christ so Aquila and Priscilla taught him he changed the content of his message. With the disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus they had heard of the coming Messiah but did not know by this time that he had come. And so Paul informed them of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and they followed Christ in baptism again. They followed John the first time, Christ the second time. Chapter 19, verses 8, uh, 8 through 10, the lost of the region trusted Christ, and many churches were planted in those years that Paul was there. Well, that created such a stir and such a revolt against sin and wickedness that Ephesus, which was an ancient center of occult practices, began to abandon the occult. And it cut into the idol market, and it cut into the bookmakers who would publish books on the occult. And so much so, there was a great riot in the city, and Paul nearly lost his life in the midst of it all. At the very least, he was threatened. But the occultists came, and they burned their books, and they were valued at 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, it's very difficult to estimate the financial value of that in today's terms. 
I've read estimates anywhere from as low as $10,000 to estimates as high as $10 million. But it's 50,000 pieces of silver, probably a drachma. A drachma was a day's wage, 50,000 days' wages in silver. I suspect it was higher than $10,000. I, I suspect it was in the millions. It's hard to prove that, though. In chapter 20, Paul left that area and went to Greece for three months. And there, the text does not say, but Paul spent those three months writing the book of Romans, which has changed the Western world. And then he went on to Troas in chapter 20, and he began preaching and preached to midnight, and one young fellow fell asleep and fell out of the window. His name was Eutychus. He died, and Paul raised him from the dead. And they were so committed to the power of the Word of God there, Paul kept preaching on and on and on till he left, perhaps the longest sermon preached that we would ever know anything about. And then he met with the pastors of the church of Ephesus in Acts 20 and preached the Word to them. The point I want to make this morning is our hope for victory lies in the Word of God. God's Word is a victorious Word. And there are several things that it accomplishes. One, God's Word illumines the darkness. I remember a number of years ago, I was uh, pastoring in Alabama, and we had some lovely young adults, especially related to the military, that populated our church in large fashion. A uh, young uh, ranger came with his family to our church and they were visiting it and, and uh, for I guess probably um, oh I don't know six to twelve months and I preached on raising up your children in scripture that morning and Erica who had grown up in a Protestant church that did not value the Bible met me after the service in the foyer weeping and broken and she was convicted by the Spirit of God that she needed to do that with her son Dalton but she said I don't know enough about the Bible to do this I don't even know God and so I quickly gave her the Bible, Bible storyline. I said, let's start reading it together. She continued to attend Sherry Michelle's Sunday school class. And three months later, she bolted down the aisle from the middle and came and without any coaching from me, said, I am ready to commit my life to Christ. And she did. She went out to the community, began to scoop up her friends and nurses from her office and became a fireball for Christ. God reconciled that marriage and did a marvelous work in Erica's family that continues to this day, if I'm to believe her Facebook post, which I certainly do. That's what God's Word does. God's Word illumines and chases the darkness. In chapter 18, verse 24, that's what happened to Apollos. It says, A certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. Being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, at least what he knew, though he only knew the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him more the way of God more accurately. He did not know enough, though he was an articulate and convincing and persuasive speaker of the message of John the Baptist, but he was humble enough to allow the content of his message to be improved by Aquila and Priscilla. And so in chapter 18 verse 28, he went on and he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scripture that Jesus is the Christ. He learned the way, but he knew more when, when they were done with him. Listen, I want to offer some hope to you, though, those of you who are confused. We can know God. We can know truth. We can know life. We can know the way. We can know the right 
Because by the Spirit, God has given us His Word. Nothing about God or life requires us to stumble in the darkness. God is not willing that any do that. All of God's promises point us to the light. God is a God of clarification and not confusion. God is a God of the noonday. He's not the God that creates dark. God is the God of the way, not dead ends. God is the God of discovery, not camouflage. Anytime somebody repents and embraces Christ, the whole knowledge of God is open to them. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.16, the apostle says... We have something marvelous that we can access. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, he says, We have the mind of Christ. Now, not everyone operates according to it. But we presently possess access to the mind of the Lord Jesus. What would happen in a marriage today that's struggling if both partners walked according to the mind of Christ? What would happen in a family if everyone were bathed and informed and nourished by the mind of Christ? What would happen in a community? What would happen around the globe if everyone were bathed and immersed in the mind of Jesus Christ? This is what Christ can do. Listen, no matter how badly you've got it wrong thus far, you can get it right today by heeding the Word of God. But there's a second element to the power of the Word. And that is God's Word not only illumines darkness, but it also induces faith. There may be some of you saying here today, I have a very hard time believing. I have a very hard time trusting. And there may be some of you who do trust, but you have a hard time convincing others of the way of Christ. There is hope in the Word of God. Chapter 19, verse 26. There's a riot in Ephesus. And Demetrius, the guild leader there, whose business has been negatively affected, complained in verse 26 about Paul and gave him a backhanded compliment he said, moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. You know, idolatry is a big money business. You sell idols. You manufacture idols. It was an entire industry in Ephesus and all around Asia. And Paul was so powerful with the Word of God that he convinced others to turn from idols, which negatively affected the business interest of Demetrius' guild. Friends, you can have victory, the victory of faith, with God's Word like those in Asia. God's Word is self-authenticating. You do not have to have a Ph.D. in theology to convince others that God's Word is true. Simply get them in the Bible. And if they'll open up the Bible with a humble heart on that condition, and if they'll open up the Bible with a willingness to go wherever truth takes them with that condition, God Himself will attest to the truthfulness of His Word, and by the Holy Spirit will counsel and guide them where they need to go. You really don't have to defend the Bible. Now, I enjoy doing this with a light and sweet spirit. We don't ever want to be malicious or harsh in doing so. Now, I enjoy doing that, but I will say to you, most of the time, it's entirely unnecessary. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. There's no need to defend the Bible any more there's a need, than there's a need to defend a lion. Let it out of its cage, it will defend itself. And that is true. I found it so often. Anytime the Word of God gets before a humble heart and a heart willing to obey truth wherever it takes them, God will unveil Himself 
to that individual. So there's no need to debate or to argue. Simply get them to read the Bible with you because there's victory in the Word of God, the victory of faith. Voltaire, the French agnostic, uh, threatened France saying, a hundred years, the Christian faith and the Bible will be eliminated from France and the Western world. He said that would happen within a hundred years. In 50 years, Voltaire was dead and the Geneva Bible Society was printing Bibles in his home off his printing press. <laughs> Make sure you understand, God is not mocked, but he will mock unbelief. So God's word induces faith. Hey, this needs to be a priority with us, introducing others to faith in Jesus Christ. There are 700 million evangelicals around the world. An evangelical is one that accepts the truthfulness and the authority of Scripture, the need for the new birth, and the Great Commission, along with a few other distinguishing characteristics. There are 700 million of those around the world. If only 10% of them would witness every day, it is mathematically possible to witness to every person on earth in less than four months. Every person on earth, every person on earth, could hear the gospel of Christ if merely 10% of evangelicals would share the gospel on a daily basis. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God's word induces faith. But there's another victory. God's word includes all. In other words, it applies to all. God expects all to heed, believe, and obey the word. Somebody may retort and say, well, that may be true for you. But it's not true for me. You know, I'd like to hear someone say that about gravity. Or I'd like to hear someone say that about death. God's Word falls into that category. I, I mean, now, whether you like Georgia or Georgia Tech, well, that might be true for you, or it might be true for me. I understand that. But when we're talking about the Word of God and issues like that, ladies and gentlemen, there's only one law in one way. Well, that's kind of narrow, isn't it? Well, I want my doctor and pharmacist to be narrow. Do you not? I want the one who flies my airplane when I'm flying commercially to be rather narrow in how he handles the airplane. It is better to land on the landing gear than to land upside down. In fact, that is always true, you see. In Acts 20, 21, Paul indicates this. Look with me in verse 21. He said... And actually, we could, we could begin in verse number 20. He said, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly like we are and from house to house like we do on Sunday nights in Grove, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul summarized the gospel in verse 21 and summarized the whole world, testifying to Jews, the covenant people, and then everyone else, the Greeks. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants the whole world to heed and to hear the word. The, word. the gospel and all of its elements apply to every person in the earth. That involves the problem that the gospel proposes and that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is relevant globally. And then the solution. The solution where Jesus Christ was executed at the cross and vindicated by his resurrection from the dead. And then our response, the terms that we must observe to come to God. Paul outlines them in verse 21. Repentance towards God 
Let me ask you, have you ever changed your mind about an important issue in life? If you have, then you've experienced something comparable to repentance. Because we change our mind about our sin. It is a wicked thing before God. We change our mind about Jesus Christ. He's more than just a casual historical figure. He's real, and God intends for Him to be my Lord. And then we change our minds about our response. I don't keep Him at arm's length. I immerse myself in Him by faith in Jesus Christ. And then faith in Jesus Christ. We trust Jesus Christ. We turn to Jesus Christ. In other words, we approach Jesus Christ with the same faith in this day that Jews approach the God of the Old Testament in theirs. Faith is transitioned from the Old Testament God to the New Testament and this era, Jesus Christ. It is not enough to say, I believe in God. I admire that and I appreciate that, especially in this day. But for salvation, forgiveness, and grace in heaven to become or to be a reality, we must transfer our faith from merely God or anything else, to Jesus Christ, because that's where the Father wants us to place his faith, our faith. So you can have the victory of the gospel when you embrace God's terms. Well, you don't understand. I am a secular person. I buy into secularism. May I say to you, secularism is entirely and thoroughly, permanently and eternally a myth. There is no such thing as secularism except where it's been invented in the head or recorded in print. In real life, there is no secularism. In fact, it is impossible to live as a real secularist. You can pretend. I can pretend to be a cucumber. Some days, well, never mind. But you can pretend to be secular. But it is impossible to be secular. Let me explain why. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is your creator. You can't change that. That completely eliminates the possibility of secularism. Oh, but it gets more intense. Today, God the Father is providentially watching over you and by a spirit in church wooing you to Jesus Christ. You can't change that. That is entirely up to Him. In the future, there is a death and it's appointed once unto man after death to be judged by God. There is a day of judgment coming in the future. You can't change that. You cannot escape creation. You cannot es escape providence. You cannot escape judgment. Secularism is thoroughly, entirely a myth. Now, if you want to go out and create your own universe and set the rules there, that's fine. But for the time being, we've got to live in this one and Jesus Christ is Lord over it all, and that is an inescapable conclusion. God's Word includes all. But there's a fourth power to the Word of God, and that is God's Word invigorates growth. In 1965, the Rolling Stones complained, I can't get no satisfaction through commercialism and sexuality. They re-released the song with the same complaint 30 years later in 1995. So in those 30 years, their sexual lives and their commercialism still did not give them satisfaction. Just a few weeks ago, they released a lyric video complaining once again, I can't get no satisfaction. And I'm thinking, why not? All the sex, all the drugs, all the alcohol, all the tours, all the fame, all the money, Everything this world has said is the pinnacle 
of life outside the will of God and you don't have any satisfaction? My soul, it's been 50 years. I can't get, no, they remind me of the Titanic. The Titanic was built in 1912. It was lauded as the unsinkable ship, but has it ever occurred to you? All the Titanic did was sink. That's all that it did. It simply sank. And I will say to you, a life outside the will of God in Christ Jesus is destined to sink. I am so glad there are people that are waking up to the sinking feeling they have with the sex and the money and the power grabbing and the mere resume building, ambition, and even the occult. Incredible dissatisfaction. They are gorging themselves on what is not bread and they're pursuing what does not satisfy like Isaiah complained in Isaiah 55 too. God offers a better diet and he does it in terms of a shepherd in verse number 28. He told the Ephesian pastors, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. And he goes on, Among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which is so precious to him. He purchased it, God did, with his own blood. And at the cross, God did purchase the church, for it was God bleeding for our sins. The word shepherd here indicates an ancient shepherd. It's very simple. And a shepherd's task and duty was to make sure he feeds the sheep. In other words, consumption of the Word of God is compared to a good diet. Your health never surpasses your diet. You are, in your health, an awful lot of what you have consumed in groceries. In the same way, your soul never surpasses your intake of the Word of God. Your satisfaction never surpasses your intake of the Word of God. And I will go so far as to say this. Your soul will always be a little less satisfied than your intake of the Word of God and practice of prayer. The very best thing you will do is look to the Bible and pray. There will not be anything in your walk with God that you will do better than that. Everything else will be quite under. And so if your involvement with the word in prayer is so low, that's where your satisfaction is going to be. In fact, it's going to be lower. But if you will elevate your intake of the word, if you will increase your diet of the word of God as we're proposing through these priorities, then friend, your spiritual health will improve. You can have victory of growth as you consume the Word of God. And God promises to come through and do that for you every time. Would you quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that today your Word and Spirit have penetrated and have penetrated hearts. And dear God, you've illumined minds. You've invigorated some growth today. And you've embraced all, or at least moved on all, to bow before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Thank you, dear God, for how you have worked in this day. And I want to pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will intervene and move the will. I pray that you would liberate where there's bondage. And I pray, O oh God, that you would give a strong sense of urgency to hearts that are now far too casual and careless. O oh God, would you do that by the Spirit. 
Help friends today to open up and fling open the door of their lives and invite Christ to be Master and Lord and to take His rightful place on the throne of their hearts and lives. Would you make that so in lives today, O God? Because, God, there is great need. We trust your word about the problem, the solution, and the terms of getting right with you. And I want to pray friends today would embrace these. Now, we have staff standing up here at the front. And if you need some spiritual help, you're ready to make a decision for Christ, now's the time. There's no magic to walking down this aisle. But the truth is, is that sometimes we need some help and we need someone to pray with us. Would you come and take that step? The Lord's dealing with your heart. You're a little nervous. You kind of wish the service would end. That means you. God loves you. Jesus Christ bled for you. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Don't let the enemy get a victory today. You've been drifting far long enough. And let me say to you, He's dealing with your heart and life now. He wants to come in and be master because you're probably going to need Him like you never have before in coming days. A lot of times God works on us intensely like He is with you now because you're about to face something this week that's going to be a challenge. You come. You can trust Christ. He loves you. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, never lied, was never charged with any sin, was crucified and raised from the dead, has been changing lives and marching victoriously around the globe for two millenniums. You don't know anyone like that. And God, His Father, is inviting you to come to Him and to come to Him now. Please do not be casual about God's invitation to you. And we're here to, here to help you. Tim, would you lead us to sing? And you come. You come.